HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Sina Rousseau. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Gastronomica's fall 2022 issue 22.3, now available online, explores themes of transformation, adaptation, and preservation. Our guest this week is Fabio Parasecoli, a professor of food studies in the Nutrition and Food Studies Department at New York University, where he teaches and researches aspects of food related to cultural politics, media, and design. The article we will be discussing today, entitled Designing the Future of Polish Food, How Cosmopolitan Tastemakers Prototype a National Gastronomy, from issue 22.3, was co-authored by Mateusz Halawa, a researcher at the Institute of Philosophy and Sociology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. Fabio and Mateusz also recently collaborated on an edited volume entitled Global Brooklyn, Designing Food Experiences in World Cities, published by Bloomsbury in 2021, which for purposes of full disclosure, I had the pleasure and privilege of uh, contributing the opening chapter on Cape Town to. So it's not the first time that we have had the pleasure of speaking and working together. It's a pity Mateus couldn't join us today, but thank you, Fabio, for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you, Sina. Thank you for inviting me and you know, giving me the opportunity to discuss the, the work I've been doing in Poland in the past few years, as a matter of fact. It's most fascinating. And I will get to the question of why Poland in a moment. But uh, let me start by saying that the abstract to your article explains that the piece, uh, and I quote, explores the cultural work behind the newly engaging interest or the newly emerging, excuse me, interest in, Pol- in Polish cuisine culinary traditions and local ingredients among urban, educated, 
upwardly mobile middle-class foodies who a decade earlier would distinguish themselves by conspicuously consuming foreign fare, end quote. Now, there is a lot to unpack here, as there is in the title of the piece itself, to remind readers that piece is Designing the Future of Polish Food, How Cosmopolitan Tastemakers Prototype a National Gastronomy. Uh, before tackling some, some of the many complexities of terms like foodies, tastemakers, local, foreign, uh, the last in this context presumably non-Polish, i.e. not obviously part of or not yet part of the so-called national gastronomy of the title of your piece. Could you briefly tell listeners how you came to be interested in, re in researching Polish food, specifically as a scholar whose earlier works have looked at much broader topics or broader or topics related to broader uh, contexts around food and popular culture, like your delightfully titled Bite Me, Food and Popular Culture, and uh, Feasting Our Eyes, co-authored with Laura Lindenfeld on food films and cultural identity in the US, uh, or works closer to your, to your own cultural heritage or culinary idiom, i.e. food cu cultures in Italy. So why Poland? Yeah, that's that's actually an interesting story. Of course, I had been to Poland as a tourist uh, quite a few years ago. And I must say at the time, you know, the food I ate and I was in Kraków, uh, which is probably the most touristy city in, in Poland, was not that impressive. That was back in 2008, 2009, if I remember correctly. But then in 2016, uh, the Adam Mickiewicz Institute, uh, which is sort of a public institution that it has the task of um, promoting Polish culture abroad, invited me uh, with other journalists to do uh, a tour, a culinary tour of Poland. Uh, that was 2016. And I was very, very impressed with what was going on. In just a few years, the landscape had changed totally. Uh, suddenly there were chefs doing interesting things, producers also working in very interesting directions, um, market, uh, markets of artisanal foods. And so I was wondering what, what happened here? What's, what's going on? And so I, I went back and then together with Mateusz, we decided to um, apply for a grant from the uh, National Research Center of Poland, and uh, we got it. And so the past four years, we have worked on this uh, project, research project, ethnography project, also together with uh, Agata Bakush. Uh, from the University of Dynsk in the north of Poland. And we really wanted to look at what had happened. How come in such a short time, you know, Polish food or Poly food that, you know, Poles recognize as theirs has improved so much? And how come that, you know, before people really wanted to go out and eat risotto and lobsters and if they, you know, if they had money or pizza and, and kebab, 
if they didn't have that much. And now, you know, they were rediscovering um, traditional dumplings like pierogi and um, local varieties, for instance, of potatoes, of many, uh, many vegetables, uh, soups like zurek and many other dishes that are not very well known outside of Poland. But of course, we noticed that this new version of traditional foods were quite different uh, from what uh, was there in the past. And so we decided to look at it, especially using the, the, the lens of design, uh, which in, in food studies, it's still not uh, a common thing to do. But we were really looking at these people at the protagonists of these changes. We call them taste makers, the sense that they're really reshaping the sense of taste, what's good, what's bad, what's valuable, what's interesting in Poland. And we saw that they were actually working on these um, projects in a way like designer, you know, uh, designers, sorry, looking at what was around them, uh, taking pieces that they could reassemble in different ways, in a way prototype them and taste, uh, test them with, um, with consumers and then change. So it was a very intentional process with a clear idea of what the future should be. And the future is a cosmopolitan one. Meaning that, like in many other parts of the world, you know, foodies, people that really are interested in food and consider food an important part of their culture, have rediscovered their own roots, not just foreign foods, uh, transnational fashions. It happened in Italy in the late 80s. I saw it happen uh, in the US in the 2000s. And now it's the turn of Poland. So I wanted to look at that transformation that I am familiar with, but in a completely different uh, environment, you know, with a specific history, as you know, you know, Poland was uh, under a communist regime uh, until basically uh, the late 80s and then 40 years of wild uh, liberalization of markets. And in the past few years, we saw the rise of populist movements, and now they have a pretty conservative uh, government that sometimes can get also quite xenophobic. So what does it mean to rediscover a national gastronomy? Define what a national gastronomy is in that specific environment. So those were some of the questions that we were asking ourselves and uh, took us on this path. Now we've expanded the research. We've written a book proposal, and if all goes well in the public, in a couple of years, a new book will be out on the topic. Well, that uh, thank you. That's certainly uh, an exciting and almost sounds like a sort of serendipitous route in for you to have found. Although, I mean, I'm glad that you sort of described uh, similar changes in Italy and in the US. And so you start to contextualize it in a global situation, because as you were describing coming into Poland and seeing these changes as a reader or listener, I was also thinking, well, 
still I, I was curious about why Poland rather than any of the other countries around there. But of course, you do speak about some of the very specific history uh, that is now also coming you know, to the fore in terms of what is happening in that part of the world right now. But uh, let's let's dive into your article um, because there's there's a lot to unpack, as I said, and uh, and I'd love to get to the really interesting things. So you open the piece, which, as you mentioned, is a, in your words, an ethnographic essay combining food and design studies with a vignette of, quote, an upscale bar in Warsaw where a, quote, young bar, a young bearded bartender in suspenders is meticulously pouring vodka. And then a little bit later on the page, you tell us that, quote again, next door at Alexia restaurant, specialty vodkas are served in creative pairings with contemporary interpretations of traditional Polish dishes like pierogi and the sour fermented barley soup, Jurek. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. You did mention it before. The portions are smaller. The flavors are at times unusual. And the presentations distance themselves from how such traditional specialties would appear on the domestic table, end quote. So from the beginning, there's a clear setup here of a so-called traditional versus a contemporary uh, scenario of both the size, if you will, and the taste of offerings in establishments like these being markedly different from what you'd expect to find in a Polish home, if you like, or maybe in a more traditional Polish uh, restaurant or a bar. But before getting to the these language questions, which I do find very interesting and, and I hope that we can spend some time on, and key to this notion of tastemakers, which, you, which is in the title of the piece, um, would you call the, 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 these scenarios or these examples uh, expressions of new Polishness or rather Polish versions of what you might say or characterize, I hope not caricature, as like a hipster crowd with local artisanal booze or food and disposable income, which is now familiar in many places around the, uh, excuse me, around the world as covered uh, in depth in your book on global Brooklyn in that context, more around coffee than vodka. But here we're talking about artisanal small batch versus mass produced vodka. We're talking about unique stemware rather than shot glasses. Uh, the vodka is served not frozen, but at, so even at a different temperature. So the use of very specific equipment designed Again, this emphasis on design to make an otherwise sort of normal or accessible commodity worthy of more attention than usual or elevate its consumption status to make it more interesting by ma making it less accessible somehow? That's, uh, that's a very complex dynamic to, to unpack. I would say that, of course, now the influence of what's happening in the global circulation of foodies, 
values, practices, way of speaking, uh, objects, of course, has its impact. It would be impossible not to do that. Also, because now, as uh, you know, we discuss uh, in the Global Brooklyn book, you know, Instagram and visual social media have become uh, so pervasive in the food and beverage business that uh, consumers all around the world have very specific um, ideas about what a food should look like. Uh, specific expectation, not just about, you know, the size or the ingredients or the taste, but also the way it looks. And I think uh, we still don't really uh, understand fully the depth of that, uh, that process. What I think, what we think it's happening in Poland, it's uh, a conversation, some, sometimes tensed, sometimes more relaxed, between this, these global uh, trends and ideas and practices and uh, the realities of Poland, its own uh, culinary traditions, which are still very strong at home. It's not like they've disappeared. Of course, they've changed over time. Uh, the opening of supermarkets uh, in the past decades uh, brought lots of changes. Many more restaurants than before. Uh, home delivery now, it's huge. So also the domestic uh, environment has changed. But what they're trying to do in, in restaurants is taking elements in terms of flavors, in terms of techniques, in terms of ingredients, in terms of practices around the dishes, and turn it into something that could be understandable and acceptable uh, on the global stage. I think this is also particularly important for Poland because, as I said, it's, you know, it's until the late 80s, it was in a socialist um under a socialist regime. So for, for, for the country, it was very important to be integrated in the West. In a way, Poland has always felt it was part of the West, but somehow marooned in the East because of history. And they've, you know, they've been through a lot in history for a couple of years. Uh, oh, sorry, a couple of uh, centuries. The country didn't exist. Uh, it was reconstituted after World War One to then be invaded first by the Nazis and then by the Soviets. So there is a lot, uh, a lot going on there. But there is this idea that there is a Polishness. And so for us, it, is, it was very important to understand what do they mean by that. I remember in, in conversations with you know, scholars, but also practitioners, journalists, producers, you know, they, they always talk about Polish food, Polish food. And I, I like to sort of um, ask the question, why are we talking about Polish food rather than food in Poland? What makes food Polish? You know, is there some essence? Is, is there a nature of what Polish food is? Of course, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hint to is the question of national gastronomies and how they uh, they develop over time, the reasons why, who are the actors, 
um, who has authority to decide what's part of the um, of the national gastronomy and who doesn't. So these are very current uh, questions in Poland. And that's why I'm so interested in it because, you know, it might help us uh, better understand dynamics that have already happened or, you know, have been going on for a longer time because you look at them sort of a semi-periphery. And, you know, they have this feel that they are in a semi-periphery. They want to become fully Western. The, they joined the EU in 2004. Um, they are probably uh, the, the, the country with the fastest economic development in, in the area. It's a large country, so also its political weight uh, it's very important. And this has been amplified by the recent events, you know, since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine in February of this year. Poland has been at the forefront of international politics. Uh, they've been taking in hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Ukraine, mostly women and children, due to the, you know, sort of cultural closeness for a few centuries, parts of Ukraine were also part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, the languages are n- not fully mutually understandable, but, you know, they are close. And, you know, what happened uh, 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 you know, a couple of weeks ago with um, uh, the missiles falling bomb. in Poland. The yes. Missile. Yes. Um, so that suddenly put Poland on the um, on the radar of lots of people that until recently didn't even have a had a clue of where Poland was, you know, physically. So it's been an interesting moment to uh, to be there and to get to learn this culture that it's it's different. For me, it's been a very welcoming place. Learning the language has been and still is quite difficult. It's not an easy language, but, you know, I'm working on it. Uh, I I keep on working on it. I don't think I'll ever be able to be completely fluent in the language, ever. Um, Well, Fabio, I mean, you sketch uh, such a fascinating picture of the complexities of a really interesting both history and historical moment and I was, when I was rereading your piece in preparation for this conversation, I suddenly became curious about when it had originally been submitted because I was thinking about exactly what you were talking about, this uh, the sort of tense situation with the war, with Russia and Ukraine and this accidental missile that, whoops, went across the border and NATO and as you mentioned, Poland having uh, joined the EU in 2004. And I believe, I mean, you were working on this project and this piece last year. So this is something that has developed, well, is developing. What we're talking about, the historical events are developing as we speak, as it were. But it certainly remains a, a really interesting place full of, um, I suppose, very difficult tensions to negotiate between things that, as scholars of food studies, this uh, sometimes nebulous term, as 
we know, this idea of national gastronomy is always difficult to define and describe and quite contentious. And it must be even more so for, and more interestingly so, for a country like Poland. So thank you for that. Sure. And, the, and now, you know, uh, in the same issue of Gastronomica, there is also a piece I co-wrote with a few scholars from Eastern Europe Indeed. about precisely the impact of the Ukrainian war on food security in Central and Eastern Europe. Yes. And uh, we urge readers to go and have a look at that. That's issue 22.3, which is available uh, via the University of California Press Gastronomica site. But before we digress too much, uh, I feel like we could talk about many interesting things for hours here. But let's return to the language of your piece. Uh, I started by mentioning that there's a lot to unpack in just your abstract and your title regarding words and phrases like foodies, national gastronomy, which we won't have time to uh, unpack completely here. Let's go back for a moment to this tastemakers, which is a key term in your title, and who you define quite early on as, quote, those stakeholders whose interventions go beyond words to actually and materially innovate new experiences, flavors, and environments, end quote. So would it be accurate to summarize then that what you and Mateusz were interested or are interested in is how ideas manifest themselves in, for example, so now combining the food aspect with the design aspect. So ideas manifesting in, for example, stemware or the temperature not frozen that the vodka might be served at or the bartender's suspenders for that matter perhaps even how these are captured on the words or the iconography on the label of a vodka bottle, or how the food is plated in a Michelin-starred restaurant by a chef known for, in your phrase, reinventing national gastronomy as an expression of a specific aesthetic or aspiration. And with apologies for an already convoluted question, there is, yeah, it's a complex uh, issue. I just to qualify this use of aspiration, this is with reference to uh, you linking, I'm trying to link the dual practices of that you describe of rendering his, in your phrase, history ed edible, to, to make history edible, and also the project of, quote, future making. So that's the aspirational part which seems to underpin the idea of tastemakers as cultural intermediaries. That is a sub, that is a subtitle of a key section of your piece. Uh, yes. So it's, it's a sprawling question. I'll try to answer uh, parts of it here and there. So yes, we were interested in tastemakers because we wanted to see how they were uh, shaping basically uh, their idea of what the future of food in Poland should be, not only in the symbolic sphere, in the discursive sphere, in institutions, but actually in things, 
in flavors that have textures, they have smells, they have, you know, physical characteristics that might affect the experience people have of them. So in uh, not so much in the article, but uh, in the book, we'll look at the question of qualia, which are this, these uh, physical characteristics and how they have an aff- affective impact on people um, uh, dealing with, with these objects. And we realized that these people did that in, in, in very different ways, you know, besides what you, you were mentioning, you know, uh, the, the plating of a, of a dish or, or the, the shape of a vodka glass. They're actually, I, I don't know, rethinking how restaurants should work in terms of service, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes problematically, because as I said before, you know, for many years there, there was basically no restaurant tradition. And so there were no ways uh, for new chefs, new professionals to learn uh, how to do that, especially when they want to do it at a level that can be accepted as fine dining uh, at the international on the international scene, that's quite complicated uh, still. Some people are absolutely successful. And I must say now there are fine dining restaurants in Poland that are absolutely amazing. Uh, I mean, go and taste. That's all <laughs> That's all I, I can well, say. That's what I would like to do. And before we uh, take a short break, I wonder if you could... I, I, I was not sure if we were going to go there because it's a a difficult term to qualify, but you brought it up. So let's, for the benefit of readers who may not be familiar with the term qualia, which is a contentious, uh, complicated term in philosophy, mostly, would you mind just expanding uh, and explaining to listeners who may not be familiar with the term and also your use of the word affective, how those two things fit together very practically? Thank you. Yeah, so uh, qualia and philosophy were the the external characteristic of something that you recognize as um, as something. So uh, you recognize something as a chair, but that specific chair might have specific shapes, textures, characteristics, materials, and and whatnot. Uh, here we use qualia. More has, has it been used in design anthropology and in design theory, meaning, yes, we focus on the physical sensory characteristics. So how uh, people, humans, uh, perceive and experience the physical aspects of things. And when it comes to food, but not only food, because it's also its environment, it's about um, smell and flavors and textures and all these this element, you know, the haptic. Now there is a lot of talk about the haptic, the tactile aspect. And we also want to look at how these uh, physical characteristics can impact how uh, humans uh, emotionally connect with things. And we got the inspiration... Um, by uh, looking at, for instance, studies done in Hungary of how the grayness of 
communist buildings. And the, the overall grayness of clothing and sort of the lack of color had a psychological impact on Hungarians before, you know, the end of the socialist regime, uh, at the end of the, of, of the 80s. So that discussion in Eastern Europe has a particular um, tone in terms of uh, understanding how things have changed and there is uh, more availability of uh, sensory experience, more varied sensory experience that are available to more people. And that's why we sort of uh, took the concept and we're trying to work around it to better understand, you know, what are these Polish flavors? What, what are these, you know, is it fermentation? Is it uh, the flavor of um, berries foraged in the, in the forest? Is it the smell of um, uh, smoked fish, which is also a, a great tradition? There are certain things that, you know, you taste them and they taste them and they're like, okay, this sounds, this is familiar. And it, it tells me certain things and it impacts me emotionally in certain ways. We would like to go deeper into that. And for that, you know, the ethnography as a method is really good, but we're also trying to add, you know, design methods that help us think through the materiality of objects. As much as food studies is about food, sometimes it feels like the materiality, the physicality of things, it's you know, takes second place uh, in, in comparison with the symbolic, the discursive, the political, the institutional. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you started talking about the flavors of specific things like berries. And uh, because one of the things that I want to ask you after the break is uh, some of the, there's a lot of talk about design, but uh, there are flavors I want to hear you describe in the dishes but we are going to take a short break and we'll be right back this is heritage radio network hello everybody and welcome to a brand new series on heritage radio network called the culinary call sheet where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media i'm your host april jones and i'm your co-host dara bresnitz Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun. Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. 
Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sina Rousseau talking with Fabio Parasecoli about the article that he co-authored with Mateusz Halowa, Designing the Future of Polish Food, How Cosmopolitan Tastemakers Prototype a National Gastronomy, which is available in issue 22.3 of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. So we've been talking before the break about tastemaking in Polish, and we skirted around this uh, quite uh, difficult to understand term qualia, which you were explaining to listeners. And what's interesting to me about that, I mean, you referenced a study about the grayness of communist buildings in Hungary and how that was an expression of qualia. And without wanting to go too much more into that word, uh, because the sense of the or how it can be controversial is that it's also very subjective, right? It is very much about how people experience things. Uh, there is it has a great internal validity, which makes it very difficult to generalize. But there might be indeed uh, a great generalized experience. Um, but let's return to the more specific things that we can t talk about, and and I really want to get to actually some of the tastes. So, taste making in Polish or in so-called reinvented or the future of Polish gastronomy, and looking at some of the examples that um, you and your co-author have used in your article, such as small batch vodka, so things that are, are typically differentiated in some way from mass-produced or uh, easily accessible, I suppose there's also a price difference things will be more expensive at the higher end. But once we start talking about Michelin-starred restaurants and bearded uh, bartenders meticulously pouring vodka, you're probably paying a fair amount more than you normally would. So, and here I'm going to ask you to uh, pronounce for me a word in Polish, Fabio, if you would, which is the Polish word that translates as Literally, I believe, refined and figuratively sophisticated quality. Yes, Wyrafinowane. Wyrafinowane. Okay, you did that better than me. Um, so there's an environment that brings out that certain a certain sophisticated quality or how a Michelin-starred chef may seek to, and here again to use a phrase that you use in your piece, to, quote, elevate the ordinary on the plate, but in a way that still remains, and this 
is uh, goes back to something you were talking about before the break about the Polishness of the food, right? And what makes it Polish. So there's this reinvention while still remaining recognizably Polish. So there's at once a commitment to a kind of cultural heritage and an urge to engage in a form of future making in each case. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And, you know, the, this research for Polishness, it's, it's something that it's very important for them. That's why we're, we're, we're studying it and we're, we're, we're discussing it. It's, uh, it's a complicated issue because many of these flavor, many of these dishes are also shared with nearby countries from Belarus to um, Lithuania to Ukraine, you know, uh, Barst, uh, for instance, or certain fermented foods and many of these characteristics. So uh, for us, the point of interest, it was not so much to define what this Polish taste was, but to understand why it was so relevant and how not only taste makers, but also consumers are reflecting and working about it. As you pointed out, uh, we looked at uh, Michelin star restaurants, you know, at, at fine dining, but we also tried to uh, have a sense of what's the, the feel for these same things in, in different social environments. So we organized, uh, for instance, focus groups, uh, we went in the kitchens of uh, a few women, uh, talking with them, going with them to the market, and then, you know, spending time there, you also get a sense of, of what happens, you know, when you move away from uh, the high end. As a matter of fact, in the past couple of years, I've been particularly eager to sort of taste food all around the place. And I think one of the big efforts that these tastemakers have embarked on is to turn flavors that they felt were good, but too heavy and in a way too bland into something more vibrant, in something lighter, in something that it's still recognizable for their collective palette. And this is... It goes back to the conversation of, of um, the qualia. They strongly work on the uh, idea that there are certain flavors, certain ingredients, certain textures that everybody can recognize. And then, you know, the emotional impact is different from everybody, but the very fact that they can talk in, in this sense is quite interesting. I, I think it's also part of the attempt of adopting uh, tasting language from the cosmopolitan world. So the languages used for vodka is very much similar to, you know, the, the, the language and the approach to tasting that we see in wine and other spirits. I had lots of experience with a local uh, spirit called Nalevka, uh, which is basically um, a tincture. Nalevka? Uh, Nalevka. Um, and so they basically 
put f- uh, berries and fruits in alcohol and sugar, and they let it uh, be for a while. And then, you know, um, it's, it's very flavorful, especially because they use berries and fruits that might be unfamiliar to the non-Central and Eastern European. Uh, but I've seen, I've participated, for instance, in, in tastings, uh, in competitions of Nalewki. And for me, what was in, interesting is to see how they are trying to define categories and standards or, of what's good, what's bad, what's uh, well done, what, what's badly done, uh, using their own memory, uh, their own tradition, their own know-how that is really rooted in mostly domestic practices, but also uh, creating something that it's more objective and in a way responds to, you know, the same approaches and practices that you could see in wine or other, or other spirits. So all the conversations about flavors become also uh, conversations about taste. Uh, and, you know, the taste in, in many ways, it's, it's personal, but it's also uh, part of a social category. And that's where they are. I think working around in many in very interesting ways. Indeed, and and for if I may, for an article about tastemakers, and here again, I'm so glad when you started talking about berries, I was starting to get a sense of what sort of tastes and flavors we're talking about, because about halfway through your article, I found myself slightly frustrated by the many allusions to difference from the traditional, if you like, uh, when you talk about or describing something as having an unusual flavor or the chef trying to invent reinvent Polish cuisine with an amuse-bouche, which, uh, and here I quote, was arranged to look like a tiny garden patch with intensely green and flavor-intense bites sprouting out of pumpernickel black earth, which sounds kind of amazing, but from mostly a design perspective, I'm still missing, apart from the pumpernickel, I want to ask, what does it taste like? What are we talking about? Um, And then, so finally, there was also that same chef, I believe, there was a reference to something when he was asked to, what would he he was asked to cook something Polish and all he could think about was, quote, this is the phrase that you use in the article, stereotypical and bland dishes, which he didn't think would stand out to, quote, European fine dining. And there's this uh, quite a sad sense of shame and embarrassment about it. And so I'm left with almost a void of uh, what the flavors that you're trying to communicate, I mean, not you personally, but there's a, there's an amazing focus on the design, but I've got potatoes and vodka and berries. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what Polish food tastes like? Yeah, that that's actually, I mean, the problem with the article is that you have a very limited space. And so in the book we're working on, 
we go on and on on dishes and flavors and ingredients. So if you're tickled by that, just wait until <laughs> we come up. We, look we come up with the but for the book because give us a teaser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, so, for instance, for me, I, I can share the personal experience, but then you know I'll, I'll also talk about uh, how these things are discussed there. Uh, certain fermentation flavors are extremely interesting. You know, fermentation now it's fashionable all over the world. Uh, but because of their climate, because of the fact that in winter basically not much grows, uh, they've been fermenting food for you know forever, basically. So it's really part of their of their flavors. And besides, you know, uh, fermentation of I don't know cucumbers or certain vegetables that we might be more uh, used to, uh, they, for instance, ferment uh, grains, barley. Uh, to create the base of this soup, uh, jurek. So you have this specific sort of fermentation, sourdough-ish flavor that becomes part of a soup, which is quite uh, startling, but I've, I've grown really um, passionate about that specific no, soup, wherever I find it. Now it's starting to sound somewhere towards... Um, are we in the territory of like a borscht of like with no 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 much more sour? Yes, it's much more sour. It's it's a, it's a grain fermentation, so it, it has com- a completely and unique uh, flavor profile. But what's interesting, it, it's not only my impression. They very often mention jurek as one of the quintessential Polish soups in terms of flavor profiles. It's like, yes, uh, this is us. That sounds really, uh, that sounds really fascinating. And something I, I, I'm glad that you, even though I can't fully uh, imagine it, it sounds like something I want to uh, go and find. But it's closer than just an... Description of a designed a little garden on a plate. Um, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. Before no, no, we that, run that, out of time, we, we Flavio, went, this is such uh, an interesting... <laughs> yeah. This happens, but um, and this is what happens when you use words from philosophy. I think, like qualia. But if I may, just digress very quickly about, and maybe this is already answered by your. Excellent little, um, your reminder to listeners of of the history of Poland and the complications around its relationships with neighbors and so on. The idea of reinventing national gastronomy and why in some places the move to modernize is welcomed, whereas in other places it seems to be very, uh, there's a strong resistance to it. And I was only reminded of it by an Instagram reel that came up as they do in my feed. And this was of a celebrity chef, an Italian celebrity chef who's based in the UK. You may know of him. Listeners may know of him. Gino De Campo. He was a regular on ITV this morning show in the UK, and he was preparing 
a version of macaroni cheese, which doesn't sound very Italian, but uh, that's as far as I got to what he was actually preparing. And then the female host, there was a man and a woman, the female host said to him, suggested that if he add if he added ham to that dish, then it would be closer to a British carbonara. Um, at which point this, his face drops and um, the other host kind of mentions something about being glad he's standing far away. And the chef says something like, if my grandmother had wheels, she would have been a bicycle, which opens fits of laughter about, but he was saying that it makes no sense to introduce anything different. Things are as they are. And once you start introducing one new ingredient, then it turns into something completely different. So it's a kind of caricature of that. Whereas in other places, and like your article is talking about, there's a very strong commitment, I suppose, to a flavor profile, but maybe presented in a different, lighter, more accessible way, if that's a way to summarize it as we wrap up? Uh, yes, I, I, I think that's, uh, that's a, a very good way to put it. And, you know, there's still tensions because you have these tastemakers that are trying to make those changes and looking to a different future of Polish food and, you know, consumers that might take some elements of that and might stick to their guns when it comes to others. So it's an ongoing conversation, uh, which I think it's very interesting as a food scholar to observe. Absolutely. And we will look forward to reading more about uh, the reinvention of Polish national gastronomy, well, in Poland and elsewhere. Is there anything else just before we wrap up, Fabio, that you would like to share with us about any other projects that you're working on? Uh, sure. I, I, uh, uh, a new book uh, just came out uh, called Gastronativism, Food Identity and Politics, where I go back to my origin as a journalist in international affairs to look how food can be used ideologically uh, to uh, distinguish us and them for political uh, goals. Of course, food is connected with identity and it's always distinguished, you know, us from them. But what it means when it turns into an ideological tool, how do politicians use that? So that's... Um, that's something that has just came out. Um, I'm also thinking more about, you know, what's happening in Ukraine. I'm looking at what is what Russia is doing on wheat global trade in terms of uh, weaponized interdependence, which is a concept uh, that's been developed in international relations. And a piece about that should come out uh, in the spring. And I'm fully committed to the book about Polish food. So that's going to be my main, um, my main occupation for the foreseeable future. Also because I'm on sabbatical right now, so I really have time to do that. Last but not least, in March, I'll be at NYU Madrid uh, for a month to, um, for a project about design and uh, culinary heritage. But maybe there will be more about that in, you know, in other occasions. That sounds really exciting. And congratulations on your new book, uh, your recently published book, and on 
this article and the other article which uh, readers can find in issue 22.3 of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Thank you so much, Fabio, for joining us. And readers can also find the full table of contents for 22.3 and our newly published 22.4 on www.gastronomica.org. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.